Hello, anyone alive in the room? <laughs> um, uh, get your smartphones out, think of something worth tweeting. Uh, hashtag sovereign this morning, and let's make a little bit of noise uh, out in social network as we are here together. If you missed last week, you can catch up with everything from last week on uh, a single page, forward slash sovereign, on the website. The sermons will be there. Um, some of the screen uh, PowerPoints will be there as well, and you can see what's coming up in for the bargain. This week, guess who? And we're, we're hovering still in chapter one, where there was this mesmerizing, as we talked about last time, vision of God that Ezekiel saw. And in a sense, there was so much going on, it was hard, uh, to, to describe it, to take it all in. And we talked about the way on times God sometimes needs to speak to our hearts, uh, and He bypasses our understanding. He gives us things that are beyond our understanding to remind us that we can't figure Him out, we can't bring Him down to our level. We can't put him in a box. But as Ezekiel got to the end of the vision and he reflected on it, there would have been something visible and visual that stuck in his mind. He was a good Old Testament priest brought up, the son of a priest, brought up in the temple, a long line of priests, as we heard about last week. And what would have stood out were the four faces that were part of the reading that Margaret uh, read to us just some moments ago. Each of them, verse 6, had four faces. This is a, <clears throat> a visual demonstration of the throne of God. Uh, verse 10, their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a man, and on the right side, each had the face of a lion, and on the left side, the face of an ox. Uh, each also had the face of an eagle, a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. It was a very visual culture. They didn't have uh, lots of writings. People didn't read. So people visualized things, which meant that visual pictures were extremely important. A lion, for example, was for kingship. An ox was symbolic of service. An ox would... would, would uh, um, uh, lead the, the kind of plough in the field, and then at the end of his life, as a kind of thanksgiving, he would be killed for meat on the farm. So a life of service that ended in sacrifice. Uh, a, a vision of a man, you know what a man looks like, uh, and a vision of an eagle, uh, a big wide-span bird that soared the heavens. A vision of someone or something that's not contained or constrained by earthly things. So often an eagle would represent something that was divine. And here we have a glimpse of God's throne with a very visible impression that Ezekiel would have been left with that fits together with the revelation of God right the way through the Bible. I'm pausing here this morning, not so much because it involves Ezekiel, but because it's another illustration, another reminder of the way the whole of the Bible fits together and reveals common things about God from the beginning of Genesis right through to the end of Revelation. 
Ezekiel and the people with him, these Old Testament people, would have known some of the writings. Very visual culture. But in uh, just a generation before Ezekiel came on the scene, they rediscovered the book of Deuteronomy, the book of the law, and it it created a, a huge revival in the worship of the people. So Ezekiel would have had it by memory for sure. And so they knew certain things about God. They knew, for example, that there are four dominant names in the Bible. So we've got four faces there in Ezekiel, but they will have known that there were four dominant names for God that were used again and again and again in the Old Testament. Yahweh Sabbath, which usually translated uh, the Lord of hosts, often in the NIV it says the Lord or the Lord Almighty for, for, for many of these things. And the idea of this particular name for God was that God was seen as the all-powerful one who would lead his army against his enemies. This was a, a military title for God who would establish his kingdom that no other kingdom would be able to overthrow. The name is most frequently used in the Bible uh, to uh, in reference in the time of David, King David, who was the great establisher of the kingdom. It is, if you like, the kingly face of God. It is the lion of God that Ezekiel saw in the faces. And so we can go through each of these, and time doesn't permit us this morning to, to pause on any of them, but the second one, uh, El Elyon, the God Most High, is about a God who serves and protects uh, his people, uh, one who comes alongside and gives of himself. And the third name, Al Shaddai, is about a God who um, offers protection by gathering you close to his heart. It was a very, um, literally, to God's breast. It's an image of a, of, of a mother nurturing a child. And God, with his strength, brings us into the shadow of his wing. It's a very human, personal metaphor for God. And then lastly, fourth major name for God, Al-Kudesh, the Holy One. Uh, The implication that God is not just like us, but God is distinct from us. He's not a creature, he is the creator. He's not caught up in creation, but he's outside it. He's not imminent within it, he's transcendent above and beyond it. Four names that mimic or, or, or map onto the four faces that Ezekiel saw in his vision, which were the four faces were the lion, ox, the man, and the eagle. The God who is the king, who serves and sacrifices, who identifies with humanity, who is God himself. And so, uh, as, as you go through these, I, I guess you're beginning to get the picture. There are four dominant images of the Messiah that will come in the Old Testament. The Messiah will come as a king, not surprisingly, the lion again. Uh, the, the Messiah will come as the suffering servant, the ox again. And we see that most famously in Isaiah 53, where it talks about the suffering servant 
And in fact, if you uh, probably look in most NIV Bibles, it'll have as the title of Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, the Messiah that will come as a, a man. Tell this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch and he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. Goes on to talk about how this man will be a priest uh, and so on, uh, clothed in royal majesty. And the Messiah will come as God himself. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, here is your God. So we've got four faces and we've got four names and we've got four major um, foreshadowings of the Messiah and there are many others. There are four colours around which the temple was built. Purple for royalty, which is back to the face of the lion. And scarlet for sacrifice, ultimate service is to give of your life, the shedding of blood, scarlet, reminding us of the face of the ox, and the white linen, and I thought this was a bit odd at first, representing man in the temple, and I thought to represent man you'd want something that was kind of dirty and grubby, not white linen cloth. But remember, who is all of this foreshadowing? Who is the temple really about? Who was the man that never sinned? Jesus. So it all fits together. White for the man and blue in the temple for the heavens. The picture of the eagle who isn't constrained to humanity, who gives us an image of someone who can soar up into the heavens, God himself. And and of course, you will know, I don't need to remind you, that there were four blood offerings, but you knew that, and we've got no time to talk about those this morning. So, why are there four Gospels? Four names, four faces, four colours, four blood offerings, four, and there's a few other fours as well, but Why four Gospels? To show the different faces of Jesus. You know how you tell a story, and depending on how you tell the story, you illuminate different aspects of the truth of the same story. Why are there four Gospels? Because Jesus was the King, and because he was the faithful servant who would lay down his life for us, because he was the man, and because he was divine and above earthly things. Turn to your neighbour. Which gospel emphasises which? Which gospel emphasises which? And if you've got no idea where to start, okay, just think about the Christmas stories. Get your Bible open. Christmas stories are at the beginning of the four Gospels. So how does the Christmas story in each of the Gospels illustrate the way the writer is emphasizing a particular aspect of Jesus that mimics all that's gone on in the Old Testament? Go. And you'll be tested on it in just a few minutes. And if you get it wrong, you're not allowed out. You'll miss your break time and everything. Thirty seconds, you can phone a friend, go fifty fifty. Take 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 the money. (laughs) Yeah, there is no money. Your prize will be in heaven. Okie doke. Matthew. What's Matthew emphasizing in his story? Way, very good. What's Mark emphasizing? Why? 
or was it just a lucky guess, you good Christians? Why is Mark, or you put man, well I can understand that, Mark is service, you're right, but why? Okay, let's keep going then, sinners, as you don't know why you were lucky on that one. Luke? Why? Because he was a doctor. Uh, I mean, you're getting close, Sally. He gave lots of, look at the, think about the Christmas story for Luke, for example. It's lots of personal detail. The, the mothers that conceive, the joy that's in their heart, they journey and meet together for support, and it's a very earthly gospel. It, it's the most normal kind of story of people anticipating a birth, focusing on Jesus as uh, a man, uh, and therefore John is what? Divine. John's divine, because? Because it's the only one left? John 1, 1, exactly, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and so on and so forth. Absolutely, so Jesus is king, and just a very quick uh, journey, Jesus is king, and we see it in Matthew. Matthew begins right at the beginning with his genealogy, the son of Abraham and the son of David. Those are royal titles. Abraham was the head, the national leader. David was the great kingdom leader and so on. The nativity, who came to the stable in the nativity or to the inn in the nativity in Matthew's gospel? Even the kings come and worship because this is a greater king whose earthly kingship felt threatened because Jesus was born in Matthew's gospel. Okay, so you can see how all that works. The Sermon on the Mount... It's all about establishing a, a new way of living, a new kingdom that's coming. Uh, even Jesus' miracles are about a new kingdom breaking in. His Jesus is the king, the ruler over diseases and nature and so on and so forth. Uh, then we go on to Mark. You didn't have a clue why you guessed right about Mark uh, being the servant, the, sa- the one who lays down his life. And it's really because Mark is right into the action straight away. It doesn't bother telling you really hardly anything about who Jesus is or why he came, but it gets straight into Jesus meeting people's needs, Jesus coming to serve, Jesus coming to give himself, and it goes bang, 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 all the way through ten chapters until you get this uh, wonderful verse that we know so well that's only found in Mark. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Pivotal point in the story, in Mark's story, and then we get into the passion of Jesus' death and resurrection. Luke, we talked about it in the nativity stories in Luke, emphasizing Jesus' humanity. It's only Luke that talks about Jesus as a boy, only Luke that talks about Jesus having to grow up into manhood. It, um, Luke talks a lot about how Jesus as a man needed to depend on God because he needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit in order to, so he was driven by the Spirit into the desert, then in the power of the Holy Spirit he went into Galilee, and Luke is emphasising how Jesus as a man, just like you and me, needed to live out of his dependence on God. And then lastly, John's Gospel, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Can't be clearer than that. And through John's Gospel, you get the I am sayings, which was the name that... uh, God gave to Moses way back the, the Yahweh we get from, I am, I am, I am the gate, I am the bread of life, I am the resurrection and the life, and so on and so forth. 
And the more you look at each of the Gospels, the more you become familiar with them, the more you'll see the Spirit just lighting up a face, if you like, of Jesus. And what's really important, and what I just want you to take away this morning, is two things. One, don't let anyone kid you the Bible's just another book. Yeah? So all of that thread that we've talked about covers, you know, a thousand years or more. And people rock up as if it's all just a higgledy-piggledy mix of stuff. Okay, there's a, a massive interwoven story as if the person that wrote it knew the end before they started writing. It's better than J.K. Rowling, who knew the end, but wouldn't say that she was a Christian because that would confirm how it was all going to end up. How cool is that? Mind you, we could all sit on that for a little bit of money, couldn't we? No. The second thing is this and way more important than even what it illuminates about the Bible. It's about how we respond uh, to Jesus. You see, because we each have our particular emphases. And what uh, Ezekiel saw in the vision is that you need all four to get a picture of the God who is making himself known to Ezekiel in the Old Testament and the God who makes himself known in Jesus to us today. How do we respond to Jesus? You see, many of us, we want to trust in his sacrifice. We want the ox face, the Jesus that will serve me, the Jesus that will give his life for me, the Jesus who lays down himself for me. But we're not so keen on the Jesus who we must obey as king, who is the Lord and ruler, who demands everything of us, who will not rest until we submit everything that we have, our time, our energy, our relationships, our money, our work, our jobs, whatever it is, he will not rest until we submit it all to him because he is also the king as well as the servant. And sometimes we, we, we might choose to emphasize Jesus as the God that we worship and he is rightly so big and so awesome that he is absolutely out there. But God can be so out there in Jesus that we never actually get to know him and we can emphasize the face of the eagle with forget that Jesus is a man that we can know, whose friendship we can share. At the end of John's Gospel, interestingly enough, with the emphasis is about being about Jesus being the Son of God, he says to his disciples, I call you friends. I call you friends. And, and you see how we need to get all of these four together to live right, to worship right, to be the people that God calls us to be. How do we respond? What, what face do you particularly focus on? And which face do you particularly keep in the shadows? How do we respond to him? We must obey him as the king. And yeah, we must trust him for his sacrifice instead of ourselves. And we must seek his friendship and worship him as God. And if that's how we respond, the the flip side of that is what we receive from him. You see, if, if Jesus isn't the king, then I can forget about seeing kingdom breakthrough in my life. Because the things that are going on in my life are outside Jesus' control, unless he is the king, wouldn't you agree? If Jesus isn't the king, Ezekiel's in real trouble in Ishtar's house, wouldn't you agree? If Jesus isn't the king, I'm in real trouble, and so are you. And we respond and we, to Jesus as the king and say we're going to lay down our lives to him, which means we have the right as his people, as members of his kingdom, to receive into our lives his kingdom breakthrough. Now that's pretty cool. 
But you can't pray today for kingdom breakthrough unless you're walking in kingdom obedience. Does that make sense? And you can't receive his forgiveness and healing if you're trusting something or someone else other than his suffering service, other than his sacrifice. And you cannot receive his friendship and transforming presence if you keep God at a distance and fail to recognize that he wants to come close to you as a friend. And you cannot receive his true life if in the end you think he was just a man. How do you respond and what do you receive? There's lots to work out there. We'll be working some of that out in our small groups this week. Uh, perhaps in our mission communities this week, in our accountability groups, when we meet in different ways this, this coming week. What does it mean to allow the full picture of Jesus, the full revelation of God, to impact, to touch, and to change our lives? Ezekiel fell face down. Fell face down. And we need to do the same. Let's pray.